fellowship is an opportunity to delve more into the research side of things. I think that you don't have to be a research expert to do well in fellowship and to make successful research in a couple of years. You can do it even as a novice. Today, we tackle the subject of fellows research and scholarly activity in pediatric pulmonology. You're listening to the Pediatric Pulmonology Podcast, the show where we delve deeper into hot topics in the pediatric pulmonology field and discuss groundbreaking research being done by pediatric pulmonology fellows. I'm your host, Audrey Herr. Today, I will be speaking with Dr. Laura Lazzarini, a pediatric specialist at the Children's Hospital of Los Angeles, to discuss her extensive research across her published papers such as one in particular, which we'll be delving into today from November, 2021, titled, Does Acute Flaccid Myelitis Cause Respiratory Failure in Children? Her work is extremely relevant, impactful, and ongoing as we speak. So without further ado, I extend a very warm welcome to Dr. Lazzarini. How are you today? I'm good, thank you. Thank you so much for taking the time to chat with me. I really appreciate it. Of course, it's so great to get the chance to talk to you and about your very insightful research. So would you like to introduce yourself? Sure. I'm Laura Lazzarini, now Laura Woe, just recently changed my name, but I am a third-year pediatric pulmonary fellow at Children's Hospital Los Angeles. I'm just about two weeks away from graduating, so it's very exciting. Yeah, and I'm originally from the Bay Area, California, but I've moved around all over for my medical training, and yeah, happy to chat with you today. Awesome. Okay, great. Thank you so much. Now, your recent research paper considers the implications and possible effects of acute flaccid myelitis, a rare but fatal polio-like virus that most commonly affects young children. What initially made you curious about acute flaccid myelitis? Yeah, so within pediatric pulmonary medicine, there's different areas of interest. Some some people, providers really like what's called BPD or bronchopulmonary dysplasia, babies that were born early. Me, I really like the patients that have neuromuscular weakness because it leads to respiratory difficulties as well. And a subset of that topic includes acute flaccid myelitis. So I thought it was a novel and interesting subset of neuromuscular weakness and pulmonary medicine. So I wanted to explore more, but it was also definitely with the help of Dr. Keynes. He is an incredible physician in our department who looped me in on this topic and project. Yeah. And I was able to read that research paper and reading it, I was like, what is acute plasmylitis? I'd never really heard of it before. I definitely thank you for bringing that topic into the limelight. So if possible, have you seen the results in your research regarding AFM spark new discussions or new discoveries about how to approach child patients with this disease possibly? Yeah, that's a great question. I think with the COVID pandemic, it's a little bit tough to say because what's interesting is with acute myelitis or AFM, there tends to be a cyclical presentation where it's every other year it presents in the summertime. And during the pandemic, when everyone was quarantined, we did not see AFM as much. I think that there's been less coming out about it and less focus on it with especially just the COVID pandemic being on everyone's minds all the time. So I think that now that we're all less quarantined than we were, it's expected that AFM cases will increase. So I'm hoping that we'll see our research uh, referenced more often moving forward. But I think that 
Our research is unique in that it highlights the respiratory complications of acute phosphomyelitis more than just the weakness that it comes with. So I think it's a little bit to be determined, but I hope that people have been reading it and will continue to reference it more as we move forward. Yes, I agree. You talked a lot about patient care, actually, and in your senior summation, I was able to view, you talked about the patient care plan that you were working on. What is something you would say that you care a lot about when it comes to treating patients and helping them throughout their process? Oh, that's a very thoughtful question. I think, especially when you choose pediatric pulmonary medicine as your specialty, it's a field that's full of chronic care. So you're with these patients and families for years and years for their lifetime, really. And I think that working with families is the most important thing to make sure that the patients have everything that they need to be well taken care of. And as doctors and nurses, respiratory therapists, we all have our expertise in the medical aspect of things and some of the technicalities, but the families are really the true experts in their child. And I think that what I want to do and what I care about is giving the families everything that they need to feel empowered to care for their medically complex child or their child with whatever pulmonary disease that they have. So I think with the respiratory care plan that you referenced that I was working on, it, it was my idea of trying to set up families for success to know what to do when their child gets sick, to feel like they have all the tools and a plan in place. Cause you know, just it, getting sick happens when you don't expect it, obviously. And then it was also going to be helpful for providers because there are a limited number of pediatric pulmonologists. And I think that if we can have other providers have a respiratory care plan for a reference that might be seeing our patients instead of us when they're sick, then empowering them to care for our patients as well. Because really at the end of the day, it's trying to give the patient what they need and try and be as preventative as we can. Like we don't want to be in trouble and then looking for a care plan. We want to have a stepwise plan in place so that we can prevent them from getting too sick or have just the right steps in place to move forward. Yeah. And then was that a plan you developed over the years, practicing your specialty, learning about it, or was it something from conducting your research that, you know, especially after have studies of human subjects? I think that when you work in just a bigger institution, a hospital, there's so many patients and different specialties and providers involved that sometimes there can be a little bit of miscommunication or mismessaging when you just have so many, it's so many cooks in the kitchen. I think this idea actually stemmed from my time during my pediatric residency when I would see patients with pulmonary issues come in and there wasn't a clear plan of what we needed to do to help them with their airway clearance, for example. And I thought that if every patient just had their own little special plan <laughs> that we could all reference, then it would just be so much easier for the patient's families and us as the providers taking care of them. So I think it really stemmed from my clinical experience, but I think got further elaborated, but maybe as I expanded my research experience to putting the things together may have made it more successful and helped me troubleshoot some things possibly. Yeah, that's so awesome. Okay, so gearing off. So in addition, you also won the American Association of Neuromuscular and Electrodiagnostic Medicine 2020 Residency and Fellowship Member Award. So do you have any advice or learning experiences that you took away over the years as a research novice for pediatric pulmonology fellows? 
Yeah. So going into fellowship, I did not have a lot of research experience. I had minimal experiences along the way that were maybe often required as part of my (laughs) medical training. I really tended to gravitate more towards direct patient care. That was what I really loved to do. But fellowship, it is a really opportunity to delve more into the research side of things. It's part of the curriculum. It's an important part. So I learned a lot throughout my fellowship because I really didn't know much going into it, which is a good I think that's good. I think that you don't have to be a research expert to do well in fellowship and to make successful research in a couple of years. You can do it even as a novice. But I think that it's really important to choose your mentors wisely. I think personalities, you have different people that fit and click well together. So that's one thing. But also, if you can find someone that has more experience in the research field, especially when I didn't, or if you don't have research, I think someone that is well-versed in that world will really be helpful for you to guide you along the way. It'd be harder if you were both trying to figure it out together. So for that award that you mentioned, it was actually a neurologist that was in my research like scholarly oversight committee, Dr. Ramaspat, who told me about that conference because as a pulmonary person, I was not aware of all the neuro, like all the other conferences out there, especially within neurology. And because there's overlap with AFM and neurology and pulmonary medicine. She was the one that brought up that conference and encouraged me to submit the early stages, like case reports of some of the AFM patients. And that's how I got accepted into that conference and was able to present research there. Yeah. So also just like trying to have someone outside of your box too, is also helpful to give you a different perspective. Yeah, you definitely expressed your gratitude for your mentors, and they definitely have been more than active in supporting you and your work. What else has been particularly helpful in completing your research or publishing? I would say, in addition to choosing your mentors, I think trying to have a set time where you meet with your mentors once a month or even every couple months at your schedule changes. Sometimes you're busier than other times, but I think having a regular check-in time with your group is really helpful because it helps you stay on track and they push you when you're like, oh, I have a million other things going on. (laughs) You think you can't do it. They'll be like, okay, I want this by next week or I want this by next month. I think they give you concrete deadlines and that also helps you move forward. And I think also just being patient and kind to yourself because I think one thing I learned with research is that when you like knock on one door, 10 more open, you get, you answer one question and then you have 10 more that come up and you're like, okay, now where do I go? And that's a natural part of the process I learned. So that's normal and just take it in stride and just see where it takes you have an open mind and be flexible. There are so many different obstacles and hurdles to come over when you're doing such a big project like research. What would you say was the largest hurdle you had to overcome throughout your research? I think just having your plans change or having outcomes that you didn't necessarily expect and then being able to adapt to it. For example, with the AFM research that I have published, it initially started with this idea to do a prospective study where we looked at patients' breathing patterns using some sleep lab equipment and software to to look at something completely different that I ended up looking at. So I I think, but because of the pandemic, we weren't seeing the patients come into our hospital in person as much. So it wasn't a feasible project in the end. And so I had to adapt to the pandemic and 
just run with what I could, which was describing the respiratory outcomes in the AFM patients, which is what I did publish. So I think it will probably happen to most people when they do research at some point is something will go wrong or it won't turn out as you expected. But I think still rolling with your idea or topic and seeing how you can adapt it will lead you to success eventually. And is that something you adopted when your publications got rejected? Yeah, that's another good point. I So it, it is a process to get things published. So for that, the paper I did publish initially, it was accepted, I think, with minor revisions. Either it'll be accepted with major revisions, minor revisions, or sometimes it's just flat out rejected. So I did have to go back and do a little bit more data collection. I had to edit the paper with my mentors as well. So that is part of the process too. And I think expecting that will help you. So you're not discouraged if that does happen. I think it's pretty common to have it rejected with at least minor revisions at first. So yeah. And again, I think it's, you're learning throughout the whole process, whether it ends up being published or not, the idea of creating the concept, writing the paper, collecting the data, writing the paper, all of it is a learning experience. And I think you can take things away from that, even if you don't get the outcome you were hoping for. Do you have any tips for taking in revisions? Meeting with your mentors. So there's also like a certain format that you usually have to resubmit the, the revisions in, which I was unaware of until I met with them and they told me how to prepare it and what to do. So definitely working with your mentors, going over the recommended changes together as a group to to either explain why you are not making those edits or why you can't, because maybe you're just lacking data, for example, or working together to see what's the best way to change this. How do we make this more concise? Or how can we add to this without adding too much and taking it in the wrong direction? So just talking with your group is important. And I think, again, being timely about it too, trying to do it quickly before you forget so you can move forward. Yeah. And then has been working in a group, not just with your mentors, but maybe with other people, maybe expanded your perspective on research in general? Yeah, because I think with the AFM paper, I got to work in this great multidisciplinary clinic where there was occupational therapists, physical therapists, orthopedics, neuro, pulmonary, there's neurosurgeons, there's plastic surgeons, so tons of different people who bring different thoughts and opinions on research topics and clinical topics in general. So I think everyone helped me along the way, even if they weren't my dedicated SOC or research mentors, they were still helpful in my project and my research process. And even earlier on, before I got set up with this AFM group, I had met with some doctors in the ICU to see if I could have done some research with similar topics they were focused on as well. And I think all of it is like a piece to the puzzle. Like it, it adds some component that helps direct you where you end up going. So other than just writing and publishing, which is difficult in and of itself, you also were given the chance to speak at two very notable conferences with your research. What is your biggest tip on presenting? And have you seen a difference between presenting your work at a conference versus having it written and published in a journal? Yeah, I think when it's all written for, it speaks for itself. You don't have to talk to anyone and and try and explain what it is. You've already laid that out. But when you're presenting at a conference, you do have to be able to take your research, as complicated as it may be, as long as it may be, and make it concise so that someone can understand it in three to five sentences. And 
I think that can be a challenge because you so much, because you've worked so hard on the topic and you all these things, but you have to really edit yourself down so that you have a clear point and message come across. And then in terms of the conferences, did poster presentations. So also figuring out how you visually portray what you want to, how do you show everything that you want on the poster with, again, it not being too much where you lose sight of the main points. If the whole, the whole thing is just words, it's just trying to edit yourself and be concise <laughs> is the challenge. And then also a big congratulations to you since you have a CCHS case report that is set to be published very soon. How has progress been? Yeah, so I haven't quite submitted it yet. So I just still have some more steps toward before it's published, but we're hopeful. Yeah, that process, I had similar mentors on my AFM project as with this just case report, but I think What's motivating is when you find the research or the case report, whatever you're trying to describe, interesting and relevant in medicine. And we do think that these cases are very um, unique because they describe different gene mutations of the gene that causes CCHS that haven't been described too much before. So I think it always is encouraging when you're like, okay, I'm going to add to the literature. I'm going to hopefully help with what I'm putting out there. So we're getting close. We're in the final edit stages and then hoping to submit this week. And then we'll see if they accept or if they want any revisions. We'll go from there. (laughs) That's awesome. On that same note, what would you say for other pediatric pulmonologist fellows really motivates very meaningful research? I think finding a topic that's near and dear to your heart. So for me, I do really like that the neuromuscular population in pediatric pulmonary medicine, and that's not for everyone. Some people like pulmonary hypertension or BPD, like I mentioned, I think finding your clinical area of interest will keep you motivated to explore questions because that's what research is. You're exploring questions and maybe seeing how you can, what you can comment on. So hopefully things improve in the future, you expand knowledge. So I think that's easier if it's within an area of interest that you have. That's what I would say. On that same CCHS case report, what have you seen as the main differences between research with a case study like this one versus a retrospective review of a case series like with the AFM study? Yeah, they are really different. With the case report, you're focused on just a couple, or we have three cases for this case report. So it's getting closer to what you call a case series when it's a little bit longer, like over that three patient mark. But for case reports, you're really focused on describing the clinical picture. You're describing what happened with each patient and then discussing those findings and what that means and how it adds to the literature versus with the descriptive study, the retrospective study that I did with AFM, that was about 54 patients. So that, that instead of telling a story of each patient, you're doing more data analysis and looking at the trends, like what was the, what were the percentage of patients that experienced respiratory failure? And then from there, how long did that last? Like you're telling the overall picture and numbers from a group of patients, as opposed to an individual story. So the style of writing is different and your goals are, I think, different as well. Would you like to elaborate on research you're working on right now that you would love for listeners to know about? Yes. So in a a follow-up to the AFM paper that I've already published that described the respiratory outcomes in pediatric patients with AFM, the next it's not really the next step of the same project, but within that same group, all these patients were referred to 
CHLA to be considered for possible nerve transfer surgery, where you can actually take one nerve and move it to try and power a, a different, like a weak muscle or a weak extremity. So that is really unique. Not a lot of centers do that. And so there's very little description of that, especially in pediatric patients, like with AFM, it's been described more in adult patients that have had some trauma to some of their nerves in the upper spinal cord. We set out to describe the respiratory outcomes in patients that underwent this nerve transfer surgery that used respiratory nerves. And so the intercostal nerve and or the phrenic nerve is the big nerve that powers the diaphragm, which is our major breathing muscle. So there's some patients that have had one of their phrenic nerves sacrifice to power an extremity. So they lose that function of one of their diaphragms. So it's very unique. And I think it's important to, to publish that. And we're really close with that too. We are in the final stages of a draft of our manuscript and just have to submit and then see what the reviewers think and to see what edits that they want, if any. What are the steps to writing and completing a research paper? So this is after we've created the whole concept, like you have all your data and you're ready to write it. Yeah. I think a lot of people will recommend starting with the methods because that's something you can even write before you have all your data analysis. And it might help you feel good that you have something started on paper. And then it is really important to have a good understanding of your data and your data analysis to know what your story is going to be, because you want to know what angle you're writing from so that you can support support whatever you're trying to say. So I think after the methods and a good understanding of what you're trying to present with your data, starting with the intro, at least that's what I like to do to set the stage and then continue on with describing your results. And then it's also a good time to meet with your mentors, I think at that point to review where you're at, to see if they like where it's going and then you have a better idea of how you wanna move forward with the discussion because your discussion is really summarizing what you've said and how it fits in with the literature that's there and the endpoints that you want to make, the conclusions you want to make with your research. Then after you write the discussion, again, just meeting over and over <laughs> with them and um, just doing tons of edits, working together to see what needs to be edited down or expanded on, what other research papers are they aware of that they can tell you so you can add that to your paper as well. It's really a collaborative effort, but just I think the hardest thing is to start writing. So just start writing and then meet with your mentors, then you'll do great. Yeah, it's always hard to start with the writing, just getting it started. It is, yeah. But we can all do it. If I could do it, you guys could do it. <laughs> I had a specific question. You talked about other research papers and other studies in your discussions. Was that recommended to you by your mentors or? Did you read that and did that inspire your new research and sort of the purpose behind it? Yeah, this is a great question. So with your discussions and your research papers, you, you're trying to say how you fit in. You're trying to comment on what research has been done so that you show that you're aware you've done your homework and you have done a lit search and know what's out there and you know how you're expanding on it and why what you're saying is important. What does your research add? And you can't say that if you don't know what's already out there. So it is part of the standard format of discussions is including research that's been done to, and then you'll have research done on the same subject, subject sometimes. And so trying to see how your research is similar or different from theirs. What is it support versus like 
contrast. It's a kind of a discussion, like that's the point of it, to see how your research fits in with what's already out there and where you want to take it. But it it is, while I am inspired by all of those papers, it's more of the kind of structured format of a discussion in a paper. Got it. Thank you. Are there any areas in medicine or patient care that you believe deserve further inspection in pediatric pulmonology? Yes, I'm sure there's so much, but with my my bias and love of the neuromuscular <laughs> patients, I think that there's still a lot to be explored in that area too. I think in general, there hasn't been as much like change happening within that field until recently, specifically looking at patients with something called spinal muscular atrophy. They have some incredible new therapies that were not available a decade ago, and it's really changing the outcomes of these patients. And now SMA is something that can get picked up on a newborn screen. So I think that there's a ton of potential to do research in this population to see how the therapies are helping and what other things that we can do to help these patients and explore the current therapies and what else could be done in the future. So I think it's a, the neuromuscular field is a changing field, which gives a lot of opportunity. And then I also think that as we're becoming, you know, patients are becoming more complex, the more advances we make in medicine, I think it'll be interesting to see some research discussing the, or focusing on some of the outcomes or decisions that we've made when trying to care for these families. I know that's a little bit vague, but it's a broad area. And I think there's some really intelligent people out there that will hopefully narrow some specifics down in that field and help us as providers figure out the best way to care for these patients. That's what research will help us do. Is that what keeps you going? Just knowing that at the end of all the research that you do, there's always a patient behind it. Yeah, it definitely is what motivates me. I also think that being in medicine, I think you have to enjoy learning because you, you can't ever stop. Everything's constantly changing and we're all learning more. So in addition to the patients themselves and wanting the best for them and their families, I think also there is this natural drive to keep learning and research was an area I hadn't explored as much. So I think that just the learning in and of itself was motivating. And I think you have to be a curious mind to be in medicine too. And research is that it's endless curiosity, endless questions that come up. So sometimes it, for me, it feels a little frustrating because you want to know all the answers, but that's part of the fun, right? Is exploring those questions along the way. Is this research required by your fellowship or is it something that you do on your own vocation? That's a great question. It, it is required that you participate in some meaningful research project or experience. So you don't necessarily have to be published, but you have to ideally explore a topic and write, get to the point where you've written a manuscript, even if it never gets published, so that you've gone through the thought process and you've dedicated your time and energy to to some sort of research, con research concept and then carried it through, followed it through to a paper so that I think you've learned that process a little bit more. So it is required, which is, again, I learned a lot from it, even though I wouldn't have necessarily jumped out to do it myself, I would have probably done more clinical care, but I think I'm really grateful for this experience that I've had and it, it does add to your fellowship experience. Now that you're graduating, what are your future research directions or what do you think you'll be working on in Colorado? Yeah, that's a lot to explore. I think, uh, as I've said before, I'm still going to try and follow my interest in neuromuscular patients. And so there is a neuromuscular clinic that's 
at the hospital I'll be working at that I'm hoping to get more involved with. And I think after I get my feet on the ground and know what I'm just doing in this new hospital and new system, I'd like to see where that clinic takes me. I think when you're working in a multidisciplinary clinic, you have a lot of different minds in a collaborative mode. So I'm hoping that something will spark my interest to try and help improve the care for those patients. So whether or not it's another respiratory care plan that's more efficient or something along those lines, I think would be interesting and useful for my patients. And again, I, I think a key thing is just keeping an open mind when it comes to research, because you never know what's going to take off or grab your interest. So I think I'll keep an op open mind when I get to Colorado too, to see if anything else presents itself. <laughs> that's awesome. I hope you have a great time in Colorado, and I'm sure the Children's Hospital of Los Angeles will miss you so much. <laughs> oh, that's very sweet. I will miss all of them as well, because they've taught me just an incredible amount over the last three years, and I'll take all of that with me to Colorado, and I'll definitely still be in touch with everyone here. Thank you so much, and I must add that reading and listening to your work has been super eye-opening for me. I had not previously known about AFM or the involvement of intercostal and phrenic nerves, but it truly made me reconsider pediatric pulmonology and how being aware of lung health comes from so many different areas. And especially your work in a multidisciplinary clinic made me inspired to learn from all these different people in different fields of science. That's so exciting and wonderful to hear. We definitely need more people interested in pediatric pulmonary medicine. I think it has something for everyone because it really involves a ton of different organ systems like coming together that can all affect the lungs. I think it should be explored further, but yeah, I'm also just inspired by how well you put this podcast together. It's really been <laughs> wonderful. I also, I really do admire like your drive and your hunger to get like your hands dirty in like a project and your drive to want to know everything about pediatric pulmonology and, and neuromuscular conditions and providing the best care for your patients. I wish you from the bottom of my heart all the best with your future research. And so thank you so much again. Oh, thank you. Really, like, again, you've inspired me with this talk and your dedication at your age. This is really awesome that you're putting this all together. And I can see the drive that you have. So just keep it up and you'll go very far. Well, thank you so much. Yeah, Bye. no problem. Best of luck with everything. And thanks for taking the time thank to you so much. have fun in Colorado. <laughs> yeah, thank you. I, we're excited. <laughs> All right. Bye. Bye. Thank you. Thank you. Check out more of Dr. Lazzarini's work and her research paper that we discussed today titled, Does Acute Flaccid Myelitis Cause Respiratory Failure in Children? on PubMed.gov through the National Library of Medicine. Keep listening after this message to hear Dr. Lazzarini talk in detail about her AFM research paper. Make sure to subscribe to stay tuned for more pediatric pulmonology research broken down and a chance to listen to researchers front and center about their current medical works. Thanks and stay safe out there. This is Dr. Whoa, previously Dr. Lazzarini here to present her senior summation. She is our third year pediatric pulmonary fellow and we are so excited to hear everything that you have accomplished during these three years with us. And that tomorrow is graduation too. So it's just Laura's week this week. So welcome. And we're so excited.
Thank you everyone for that lovely introduction. I hope that you'll learn from the projects that I've done, like how I learned about the different topics I wasn't familiar with before and we'll get through it together. Just diving right in. My main interest within pulmonary medicine has been the neuromuscular population. I had some interest in trying to figure out a research project that was within that realm. And Dr. Keynes had approached me being like, this is maybe a little bit different than what you would have expected for a topic for neuromuscular medicine research. But I think it's really interesting. And I think that you should consider coming to join me in this AFM clinic that I participate in and see if we can describe some of the respiratory outcomes in these patients, the findings that we see in this clinic. And I was like, okay, that sounds good. <laughs> it was a really interesting concept in clinic. And so I am so grateful that I ended up joining him and going to that clinic. And so I would say the majority of kind of the biggest project or topic I've worked on in terms of research throughout my fellowship has been within the topic of acute flaccid myelitis. I'll go through the kind of two projects I've been working on within that topic and give a little bit of background into what AFM is and some of the treatments that we have for it so that you can learn a little bit more about it since it is quite rare, but something that we can see seasonally. And then I'll also go through my research, including the findings and conclusions that we had from our papers and projects. But for acute flaccid myelitis, it, or AFM, which I'll call it for now on, it was considered to be the new polio. It did gain a lot of like attention in the press a few years ago, at least before my fellowship, but that was the title that it was given, the new emerging polio, and so it got a lot of the people's attention. It is a rare disease that affects spinal cord gray matter and results in acute flaccid weakness of one or more limbs. And it's typically associated with non-polio enteroviruses. So even though it's called the new polio, because it presents similarly with acute onset flaccid weakness, technically they are non-polio enteroviruses. And two specific enteroviruses that are associated with AFM are EVD68 and then EVA711. And this is, if you do see it in the news or hear topics about it, these were the viruses that are commonly described to be associated with AFM, but not all patients present with positive findings, like for these viruses in particular. And review of clusters of AFM cases show that there's a predominant involvement of the cervical spinal cord. And so with that involvement, that does place patients at higher risk for neuromuscular respiratory failure and subsequent need for mechanical ventilation. So they do, they are at high risk for respiratory failure, which is where my interest comes in. And despite this risk of neuromuscular respiratory failure, there is little documented specifically about the respiratory complications and sequelae of AFM. A lot of the reviews that have been done and published in pediatrics, for example, have focused, they do sometimes touch on it. They'll be like, okay, like number of X number of patients needed ventilation, but the majority of them focus on the actual paralysis that results because understandably that's what they present with and it can last for indefinitely. Like not all patients recover their strength. And so that's gained most of the attention and that's what the majority of the research has been focused on. But obviously from a pulmonary standpoint, I wanted to focus more on the respiratory complications. So this was the topic of my first manuscript. It does It was acute flaccid myelitis cause respiratory failure in children. So our study it aimed to describe respiratory failure in pediatric patients that were diagnosed with AFM with an emphasis on the need for assistive ventilation. And then also if there was any intercostal and or phrenic nerve involvement, as we know, these are primary respiratory nerves that, that drive our respiratory system. So if we had the ability through the clinic that I'll describe to understand the nerve involvement, we thought that was a really interesting, unique thing to report on as well. And we wanted to focus on respiratory failure from both an acute and long-term perspective. Again, some of the studies that were out may have touched on patients needing ventilation, but there was very limited literature describing how long patients, if they did need 
ventilation or respiratory support? How long did they need that for and what did it look like? Oh, and also feel free to interrupt me at any point with questions. I can't necessarily see the chat, so just chime in. For our methods, we review the medical records of all patients that were diagnosed with AFM that were seen in our brachial plexus and peripheral nerve clinic between 2016 and 2020. Patients that were included in metaclinical diagnosis or suspected diagnosis of AFM based on defined criteria that had been published in the literature. And the data that we collected were demographics and evidence of respiratory compromise. This specifically was meant increased work of breathing, if there was a report of that, if the patient transferred to the PICU for observation for impending respiratory failure. So even if they didn't necessarily go into it, if there was concern enough that they had to go to the ICU, that qualified for respiratory compromise. The need for non-invasive positive pressure ventilation and or positive pressure ventilation via ET tube or tracheostomy. And we also looked at diagnostic studies. Specifically, we looked at diaphragm, diaphragm fluoroscopy results, chest ultrasound results, intercostal EMGs, and phrenic nerve conduction studies. And in terms of this brachial plexus clinic, I just say it's a very wonderful clinic if you haven't been before and you have interest in going with Dr. Keynes. It's multidisciplinary. It involves ortho, OT, neurology, now neurosurgery. It did involve a plastic surgeon at the time that was doing the majority of nerve transfers in these patients that I'll talk about in a bit, but it's a really great group. So I do recommend going if you get the chance. So for our results, we found 54, we had 54 patients and 35% were female. The median age of patients at illness onset was five years old with a range of seven months to 19 years. And the median age of patients at the time of our study was eight and a half years with a range of two to 20 years old. Seven patients or 13% of our cohort had a pre-existing diagnosis of asthma. And during acute AFM illness, so illness onset, 23 patients or 43% experienced respiratory compromise that was defined as acute respiratory distress, meaning need for assisted ventilation and or respiratory nerve impairment. So nearly half. And then 19 patients or 35%, about a little over a third, needed assisted ventilation and or experienced respiratory nerve impairment. So more specifically, looking at respiratory, the respiratory failure group within our cohort, there were 11 patients or 20% of fifth that experienced acute respiratory failure with their AFM onset and required assisted ventilation. Eight patients required intubation with positive pressure ventilation, and three patients were supported with just NIPV. None of these 11 patients had pre-existing pulmonary conditions, which we found interesting. And six of the 11 patients that had respiratory failure did test positive for enterovirus. Four of the 11 patients tested negative and one patient was unknown, one of the limitations of a retrospective study and you know, us being a referral center. Nine of the 11 patients underwent treatment with AFM with IVIG, steroid pulse, and or plasmapheresis. And four of the 54 patients or 7% experienced acute shortness of breath with illness onset, but they did not require any escalated respiratory support. And in terms of the nerve involvement of the 11 patients that had acute that experienced acute respiratory failure, four of those had isolated unilateral diaphragm involvement. One patient had only intercostal nerve impairment and two patients had both intercostal and diaphragm involvement. And there were eight patients that had intercostal nerve impairment alone that did not experience acute or chronic respiratory failure, just in terms of reporting kind of all the respiratory nerve involvement that we found. And no patients with AFM experienced bilateral diaphragm involvement. We found that a fifth of patients experienced acute respiratory failure. How many of those patients went on to develop chronic respiratory failure? Was this just a month or so that they had symptoms or less than that? And then they were completely fine. What happened to these patients? <clears throat> and of the 11 patients that experienced 
<clears throat> excuse me, that experienced acute respiratory failure, nine of those went on to have chronic respiratory failure. We defined chronic or we defined chronic respiratory failure as the need for prolonged positive pressure ventilation of at least one month. And so these patients, the nine patients, they had a range of needing ventilation for one month to 12 years after AFM onset. And seven patients ultimately required tracheostomy placement to provide ongoing ventilatory support. And then in terms of following these patients after they were defined to have chronic respiratory failure to see if they still need how long they needed it for, there were three patients that weaned off PV and decannulated after two to eight months. These patients that were able to wean off and decannulate were all previously healthy and their ages ranged eight to 17 years old. There was one patient that was eight months old at the time of illness that was able to wean off PV after eight months and decannulate after 14 months. But there were three patients that remained tracheostomy and ventilator dependent one year after AFM onset. And then with regards to the patients that required NIPV as opposed to invasive positive pressure ventilation, one patient, as mentioned, remained on NIPV during sleep 12 years after AFM onset. And then one patient was able to wean off NIPV one month after illness. And then of the patients that had chronic respiratory failure, speaking a little bit more about their respiratory nerve involvement, of those nine patients with chronic respiratory failure, one patient had unilateral diaphragm paralysis, three patients had unilateral diaphragm paresis, and two had concurrent unilateral diaphragm paralysis, as well as intercostal nerve impairment. Of the six patients that had diaphragm involvement, there were four that required invasive positive pressure ventilation via tracheostomy with a range of two months to one year. And there was one patient with diaphragm paralysis and intercostal nerve impairment that remained tracheostomy and ventilator dependent during sleep. Two patients required NIPV for two months to 12 years after AFM onset. One patient with diaphragm paralysis remains NIV dependent with sleep. So that patient that was still, yeah. So that is a little bit confusing. The two patients that required NIPV, only one of them needed it for two months. The other one needed it for 12 years. And the one that needed it for 12 years after AFM onset, it only needs NIPV with sleep. The remaining four patients with unilateral diaphragm and or intercostal nerve impairment were able to wean off ventilator support and decannulate without further respiratory sequelae. So as far as we know, they weren't needing to go to the hospital, having increased ED visits, having recurrent illness, again, as far as we know, because this is a referral center and a retrospective study. And I know that's a kind of a confusing way just to list all of these things off, but this is a figure that shows where we started with our cohort, at those 54 patients that we looked at that, that met criteria for diagnosis of AFM. 23 of the 54, about just under half or so, had respiratory involvement, and then about a fifth had res acute respiratory failure, and almost all of those went on to have chronic respiratory failure, seven of which was invasive, needed invasive positive pressure ventilation versus two that needed non-invasive, and of those that were invasive positive pressure dependent at one year, there were four, and three of which required tracheostomy, and one required an IPV. Sorry, I meant they weren't, those four were not all invasive, but just ventilation dependent. So in our discussion, we focused on how approximately 20% or a fifth of our AFM patients experienced neuromuscular respiratory failure during acute illness and needed assisted ventilation. Of those that experienced acute respiratory failure, most went on to develop chronic respiratory failure. But over half of those patients with chronic respiratory failure were able to wean off ventilatory support by one year. Over half of the patients that had acute and chronic respiratory failure with 
respiratory nerve involvement did test positive for enovirus, and almost all of the patients with respiratory failure underwent treatment for AFM with either combination of IVAG, steroids, and or plasmapheresis. All patients with diaphragm dysfunction with and without intercostal nerve impairment experienced acute and chronic respiratory failure. So if you have a patient with AFM, they have diaphragm involvement, that's something you can consider they're very likely to have respiratory failure, both acute and chronic. Most patients with isolated intercostal nerve impairment did not experience respiratory compromise. There was, again, only one patient with isolated intercostal nerve impairment that went on to develop acute, but not chronic respiratory failure as he was able to wean off NIPV after two weeks. Intercostal, and we feel that our findings support the concepts that one, intercostal muscles act to stabilize the chest wall in order to optimize diaphragm function. So that's why the majority of patients that had intercostal impairment alone did not experience respiratory failure, but those that did have diaphragm involvement did experience respiratory failure. And so again, in the absence of diaphragm impairment, respiratory failure is less likely in patients with AFM. We found that patients, we found it interesting that patients with, some patients with unilateral diaphragm paralysis did do well without long-term respiratory compromise. So even if they did have a period where they had acute or chronic respiratory failure, a fair amount were able to wean off and go on to live fairly uneventful lives from a respiratory standpoint, despite this unilateral diaphragm paralysis. Because of those three patients that experienced the unilateral diaphragm paralysis, one patient was able to wean off PPV by one year. And then the three patients that had unilateral diaphragm paresis, so not paralysis, but paresis, were able to wean off all respiratory support by one year without any ongoing respiratory sequelae. So these findings suggest that children can tolerate unilateral diaphragm impairment without the need for long-term respiratory support. Some limitations to our study were that it was a convenient sample, our cohort, because we were a referral center for patients that were being considered for nerve transfer for persistent limb weakness. And then while some patients were initially managed at CHLA, the majority were first managed at outside hospitals. So this was difficult for us in that it made us unable to define a respiratory failure in a standardized physiologic way because we didn't have access to all blood gases, all results of the initial workup when they had been seen elsewhere and then transferred here. And it also made it difficult for us to comment on significant differences in the initial workup and management of our patients. And then occasionally we were lacking complete medical records as well, which just limited how much we could report on as well. So the conclusions are takeaway points from our paper that a significant percentage of patients with AFM may experience respiratory compromise and develop chronic respiratory failure. However, many of these patients can be weaned off ventilatory support by one year from illness onset. And some, patient, some children with unilateral diaphragm impairment can sustain adequate ventilation without the need for long-term ventilatory support. Any questions about our findings or discussion before I, I continue on with kind of the status of this project and the next one. I don't know if I do you have an idea of, or have an idea that everyone with AFM or the numbers, like you probably already said it, like like how often people have some respiratory involvement? I think I missed it. How 20% of our patients experienced respiratory compromise. So they did require, I'd say about 20% because those that went on to have respiratory failure, I think they all had either mostly diaphragm, but also intercostal impairment as well. But yeah, about a fifth of the patients had respiratory compromise and failure, maybe slightly less than that mm-hmm. would be representative of the nerve involvement. Like a lot of people will be referred to us for the respiratory. Do you think there were also like a referral just if you had any AFM term? So they were referred to neurology or there are other neurologists that are taking care of them? So that's a great question. I would say the majority of these, all of these patients were referred specifically to the 
brachial plexus clinic. Some of them were mm-hmm. initially diagnosed at CHLA. So they were consulted by neurology first, who then may have plugged them into to the brachial or AFM clinic. But their main attraction of this clinic is the fact that there are very few centers across the country that are successfully doing nerve transfer surgeries with intercostal mm-hmm. or phrenic nerves. So a lot of the patients were referred specifically to this clinic for a consultation for that. Does that make sense? And then through that clinic being multidisciplinary, they get plugged into us. And oftentimes I know TK, we would just see them when they come into for their interval visit to this clinic and they wouldn't necessarily always see us outside of the clinic, but obviously if they had more respiratory impairment, then we would see them in pulmonary clinic as well. Yeah. So there might be like a lot of people that have mild symptoms that recover that we may not have seen. So even though the percentage is really high, it's, it's like a, a sample, like it's a population already that's kind of um, more complicated. Yeah. Other questions? Okay. So in terms of the status, and we were able to publish these findings in pediatric pulmonology. And through this project, I was also able to present posters at two national conferences, both the S in 2021, and then the American Association of Neuromuscular and Electrodiagnostic Medicine in 2020. Both of these were virtual at the time due to the pandemic. And then with the AANEM, I did get the 2020 Presidency Fellowship Member Award for my posters. And then I would say my learning points for this project were just how to learn how to draft and submit an IRB protocol. I had very limited research experience prior to coming into fellowship. So that that was a great learning point as well as how to write an abstract for a case series and create posters for virtual platform and how to write a manuscript and submit to a journal. Learned a lot. And these were all my citations from the this project specifically. And just a huge thank you to my mentors. So big thank you to Dr. Keens and Perez, Dr. Ramos Plot, and Dr. Julie Warner. She's one of the OTs that goes in the clinic too. And she helped get me on their IRB because I was on there was a couple IRBs, but she helped me through the process a lot. But yeah, Dr. Keens from plugging me into the clinic and getting me interested in this and in the concept of it. And Dr. Perez incredible like research writer mentor really helped me get this manuscript in a place to submit it. And Dr. Ramos Plot, she introduced me to the AANEM conference and other things outside of pulmonary that was helpful to get things started. And then I mentioned Julie was really helpful in terms of some of the logistics and being my go-to person when I first got plugged into AFM clinic. So then speaking a little bit more about nerve transfers at the First couple are heavy, and then hopefully I'll be able to go a little bit faster throughout. But for acute plasmamyelitis, focusing on some of the therapies that we have for it, again, because there's predominant involvement of the cervical spinal cord, this places patients at higher risk of upper extremity involvement in addition to respiratory failure, as we we discussed. And over 75% of patients with AFM experience persistent motor weakness. Management of persistent limb weakness is often supportive, so it's often they follow through OTPT, but nerve transfer to bypass the affected nerves is an emerging therapy in AFM, and this is based on successful phrenic nerve transfer in adult populations that have experienced traumatic brachial plexus injury. So it wasn't that this came out of nowhere. It had been used for brachial plexus injury, and Dr. Soraya, who was the plastic surgeon in this, cl- in this clinic, at the time, thought to do this in this population as well. Some children with AFM have undergone nerve transfer of their phrenic and or intercostal nerves to power their persistently weak upper extremities. And it's not known how children tolerate the loss of ventilatory muscle function because of respiratory nerve transfer. So that's what we set out to explore. 
this is just the words don't matter too much, but it's just a general depiction of what nerve transfer surgery would look like because it was a concept I was not familiar with prior to going to this clinic, but this is a picture of it, what they do. So our study, the titled so far, it hasn't been submitted, but we do have a draft of a manuscript. And so it's called Respiratory Outcomes After Sacrifice of Phrenic and Intercostal Nerves to Power Weak Extremities and Acute Flaccid Myelitis. And our study, it describes respiratory outcomes after phrenic and or intercostal nerve donation to power weak extremities in pediatric AFM patients. For our methods, it was very similar to our prior. We went to the same clinic to collect our patient cohort. And we, in terms of depth, data collected, we looked at demographics, evidence of respiratory compromise that was defined as the need for assisted ventilation and diagnostic study results. So diaphragm fluoro, intercostal EMGs, phrenic nerve conduction studies, and PFTs. For our results, we, there were 18 patients that underwent phrenic and or intercostal nerve donation. 39% were female and median age of patients at the time of surgery was seven and a half years with a range of three to 18 years old. And median age of patients at the time of study was nine and a half years old with a range of four to 20 years old. Patients that underwent respiratory nerve transfer for results, patients that underwent respiratory nerve transfer had persistent upper extremity weakness that had not improved with physical or occupational therapy. Despite consideration of alternative nerve donors in our cohort, because there are the nerves that you can use, you don't always have to use the phrenic. In our cohort, the phrenic and or intercostal nerves were chosen as the best available options for a successful innervation of a persistently weak upper extremity. There were five patients that underwent unilateral phrenic nerve donation, and four of those five patients also underwent intercostal nerve donation with a range of using three to six intercostal nerves. They weren't always done at the same time, uh, you know, phrenic and intercostal. Usually it was a stage that they'd try either intercostal first, and then that was not completely successful. So then they'd use phrenic or vice versa. All patients had normal phrenic nerve function prior to surgery, and no patients had required respiratory support at the time of surgery. But at initial onset of AFM, there, there was one patient that 19, 19 months prior to his nerve transfer, Transfer, that patient had experienced respiratory failure with transient phrenic nerve involvement and need for tracheostomy and ventilator support for seven months. So even though he did not need any support at the time and his phrenic nerve had recovered, they, they did do a phrenic nerve transfer in a patient that had these complications. And this patient had persistent intercostal nerve impairment at time of surgery based on intercostal EMGs and also was shown to have reduced MIPS and MEPS and reduced cough peak flow on preoperative PFTs. One patient had underlying asthma that was well-controlled prior to surgery, and one patient underwent preoperative PFTs that showed reduced vital capacity and cough peak flow in the setting of fair effort inability, though. So post-op, how did these kids do? Immediately post-operatively, two of the patients required just brief supplemental oxygen for up to a day, and the range of oxygen amount required was 0.5 to 4 liters per minute. All of these patients that underwent phrenic plus minus intercostal nerve transfer were admitted to the PICU afterwards, but it was for nerve graft monitoring, not for respiratory distress. They were admitted to the PICU for a range of two to four days and total length of hospital stay for these patients ranged four to five days. No patients experienced respiratory failure after their surgery requiring non-invasive or invasive positive pressure ventilation. And after we get past the immediate post-operative phase at the time of the study, no patients have required diaphragm plication and no patients have had respiratory compromise with illness warranting emergency department visit or hospitalization to our knowledge. In terms of post-operative PFT findings, there was one patient that underwent post-operative PFTs one and a half months after surgery that showed reduced FEV1 and FVC, but normal ratio with testing that was limited by patient effort inability. And he did not have preoperative PFTs for comparison.
So focusing on just intercostal nerve donation, 13 patients underwent intercostal nerve donation with a range of two to five, oops, sorry, <laughs> intercostal nerves. And at the time of surgery, one patient that underwent intercostal nerve donation did remain an IPV dependent with sleep, but no other patients required respiratory support. Three patients had persistent phrenic nerve impairment at the time of surgery. Two of those had diaphragm paralysis and one had diaphragm paresis. And then one patient also had concurrent intercostal nerve impairment. So both phrenic and intercostal nerve impairment at the time of intercostal nerve donation. Three patients had persistent intercostal nerve impairment from AFM prior to their intercostal nerve donation. And it is important to note that none of the damaged or impaired intercostal nerves were used for donation. They were all tested first to be fully functional before they were sacrificed to power a weak extremity. And three patients had mild controlled asthma prior to intercostal nerve donation. And then looking at these patients from a preoperative like PFT standpoint, since there were more patients, there were more results to report on. One patient had normal PFTs, one showed reduced MEPS, but MIPS were normal and coffee flow was also normal. And one patient showed severe hyperinflation, mild airway obstruction, non-uniform distribution of ventilation and de decreased NIPS, MEPS and cough peak flow. And one patient showed mild restrictive disease, mild hyperventilation, hyperinflation, I think that's supposed to be, and non-uniform distribution of ventilation, but normal MIPS and MEPS. So immediately post-operatively in, post in the intercostal muscle group, a nerve donation group, excuse me. One patient did experience temporary strider, but no patients, other uh, patients experienced respiratory distress or need for any respiratory support, including oxygen. And admission to the PICU, again, was done for nerve grafting, but not for respiratory distress and ranged one to five days. And total length of hospital stay ranged one to four. That should be one to five days, excuse me. All patients with prior and or persistent respiratory nerve impairment had no further respiratory compromise to our knowledge. So again, none of these patients have had respiratory requ compromise requiring ED visits, hospitalization to our knowledge. In terms of postoperative PFTs, three patients underwent postoperative PFTs ranging 10 months to four years postoperatively. One of those showed normal PFTs. One had reduced MIPS and MEPS, but normal cough peak flow that were similar to preoperative PFTs. And one patient had reduced cough peak flow, but otherwise normal PFTs. So in discussion, what we're just trying to focus on is how we found that children can tolerate hemidiaphragm paralysis after unilateral phrenic nerve donation without respiratory sequela or need for assisted ventilation. And the ability to tolerate phrenic and or intercostal nerve donation also applies to patients with prior intercostal and or phrenic nerve damage due to AFM who recovered. In terms of limitations, being a pediatric cohort, as you may have noticed when I was discussing the results, many patients were unable to complete preoperative and postoperative PFTs due to age, effort, and, and or ability. And again, similar to our prior paper, we are a convenient sample because we're a referral center for nerve transfer. And being a referral center and also a retrospective study, there was reduced ability to obtain standardized diagnostic testing, complete medical records, and consistent follow-up. We say that we are unaware of patients having respiratory uh, compromise after these surgeries. And th these patients do follow up in brachial plexus clinic in the future, like after surgery, they still come and check in to check on the success of the surgery and whatnot. So we are able to check in with these patients at that time and make sure that they've been doing well, but there are some patients that might not come as often. Laura, I think rather than saying to our knowledge, you can say at the time of last follow-up. Ah, okay. 
because that's a fact. And you have in your data roughly a two-year follow-up for this group. So gives people an idea. Okay. That's great. Thank you. And our conclusions or take-homes from this um, paper would be children can tolerate unilateral phrenic nerve donation as well as multiple intercostal nerve donation without developing respiratory failure, need for assistive ventilation, or clinically significant respiratory sequelae. And even children with underlying respiratory nerve damage from AFM infection can tolerate phrenic and or intercostal nerve donation. And while some patients experienced decline in their ventilatory muscle strength on postoperative PFTs, decline in PFTs did not correlate clinically as increased hospitalization for respiratory distress was not noted. Any questions, thoughts, concerns about this project before I get into its status? I have a... This does contrast a little bit with your earlier paper, because there you showed that most of the kids with diaphragm involvement from AFM even unilateral, ended up with acute and many chronic respiratory failure. And yet here you're saying you can whack a phrenic nerve and it doesn't cause the problem. Any thoughts about that difference? I think that's a good point, but I don't know. Give me a moment. Because I feel like there's other, I don't know. I was going to say, I feel like there's other weakness that's happening at the time of AFM onset. Like it's not as a controlled environment in terms of what the patient's experiencing. So there's probably other factors involved that we're not picking up on or objectively measuring as opposed to a controlled planned surgery where you've done a preoperative evaluation and an assessment by a pulmonologist to see whether or not they can tolerate this or not. Because the majority of these patients, once we were involved in the clinic, did have our opinion on whether or not we thought the patient would be able to tolerate such a surgery or not. No, I think that's absolutely right. The kids with AFM who had diaphragm paralysis, that was not the only weak muscle they had. And so there was a lot going on. They were a sicker group. And I think you're absolutely correct. We were often asked to optimize their pulmonary function before surgery here. So it's a very different sort of group. It is possible that a reviewer may have read your previous paper and may bring up that issue. So you might want to think about coming. Okay. Okay. But thank you. I have a comment, but I can tell you when we meet. <laughs> okay. All right. And then, so just in terms of status, we're nearly complete with this manuscript and planning to submit to pediatric pulmonology, which is where we submitted our other paper to. My goal is to submit it by six, by June 30th. And through this project, I've been able to present at two national conferences, also ATS and the AANEM, and then learning points, just how to, similar, how to create a poster and work in a virtual platform. And again, further knowledge on how to write a manuscript and submit to a journal. I think you can never get enough practice. It seems these are my citations from this project. And then again, same big thank you to everyone involved on this project. So hopefully I know we're running a little bit lower on time, so I'll try and cruise through the next couple of things. But another big project I worked on was the home mechanical ventilation HMV MAP project. And a little bit of background in, in terms of our HMV population, we do provide care to at least 200 HMV patients per year here at CHLA. And Jiffy had done a pilot performance improvement project that was conducted from July 2013 to March of 2016 to look at ways to improve the process of our HMV training resulting in a best practice timeframe of training families to care for their ventilator dependent child within six to seven weeks. And the preliminary data from this pilot of instituting an HMV map showed that there were better outcomes in patients that were discharged after completing this HMV training. And so with an increased need to make more efficient discharge planning, initially we were interested in whether a four-week program is sufficient and maintains the outcomes similar to a six-week program, or if there would be any sort of detriment by trying to condense our HMV training over a shorter period of time. 
So for our methods, we looked at medical records of all patients that complete, completed HMV MAP training between 2016 and 2021 at CHLA, and patients were referred to our HMV MAP were in chronic respiratory failure, required chronic out-of-hospital assisted ventilation, had not previously required mechanical ventilation home, and were younger than 22 years old. And I'll speak a little bit about the HMV MAP that we all know, but in terms of how it was created by a multidisciplinary task force, and is comprised of four kind of main phases. Or, and I think the highlight of our HMV map is the fact that it is very multidisciplinary. There's a ton of people involved in creating this HMV map. So it's all patient and family centered, but it's a combination of the RTs, nurses, clinical coordinators, dietitians, as well as OT, speech, dysphagia team, social work, child life, spiritual care, as well as us, the physicians. And within that, there's us and also the ICU and the hospitalist and the general pediatrician that's going to care for this child after discharge. So we all work together as a team being focused on the patient and family. And this is from Facebook presentation to ATS when she presented the HMV map. This is also similar from her, her poster to ATS, but this was her kind of stepwise fashion, her group stepwise fashion in terms of coming up with the HMV map pilot. So initial committees that were involved and then the creation of a seven phase map. And so each discipline would have their own assigned tasks and they came up with the six to seven week length of stay that was sufficient to train families. Then they also worked on educating the staff on Five West, ICU, coordinators, et cetera. And then they would do daily review of the patient's progress and they used some auditing tools and then ultimately measured outcomes to look at the success of this pilot project. And continuing in methods, as we know, these patients have to have two identified caregivers and pass a safety inspection of the home in order to qualify for the HMV map. And I'd say this is like a really tricky thing about this project was defining the enrollment date because in theory it was supposed to be the first HMV meeting, but we found a lot of patients would have the first HMV meeting and then maybe not be able to leave the ICU due to medical instability for up to months. So we defined the enrollment date as the first HMV meeting or transfer from ICU to Five West, whichever date was later, because that was when the majority of teaching started to happen after that later date. And also in theory, we were supposed to be able to suspend the map. So if a patient got sick, septic had to go back to the ICU, et cetera, then you could pause it and say, okay, we're not training the families right now. We're focusing on just letting them get better, but there's no way for me to really look at that in, in the medical chart to know how long it was paused for or guarantee that it was paused. So we did not include any suspension times for the maps for these patients. And the data that we collected were demographics, comorbidities, length of stay, enrollment data, as I mentioned. And then for those that had delayed length of stay, meaning over 30 days, over that four-week you know, goal, what was the reason for their extended time to complete their MAP? We also looked at readmissions to the emergency department and or the hospital within 48 hours and 30 days and the reason for their readmission, whether it was respiratory or non-respiratory. This is from the prelim data when I had about 40 patients, but I think it still reflects similarly to now where we have about six, we have 60 patients involved in the study. So the majority of patients were infants and nearly two, two thirds of them were zero to one year old, followed by two to five years old. And then the older they got, the less number of those patients that we had in our cohort. Also the majority were male, 70%. And in terms of reason for ventilator dependence, we determined that the kind of three categories for reason for ventilator dependence. One was ventilatory muscle weakness. Two was re increased respiratory load. So that would be like BPD, for example, or other causes of chronic lung disease. And then central hypoventilation was the third category. But, and it wasn't just CCHS, it was any sort of central process that would lead to the need for a ventilator. So when I first 
looked at this data with having 40 patients, what we ultimately found was that when we compared the length of stay between the four-week map and the six to seven-week map, the average length of stay was fairly similar. I have it broken down into different weeks, like two weeks through over eight weeks. And there was a lot of patients, even on the four-week map, that needed to stay over eight weeks due to just medical issues that they had at the time. So my initial goal of trying to compare the four-week map to the six to seven-week map in terms of outcomes was just a little bit tough because the length of stay was similar between the two. So it was, then it became a challenge of how to compare these two populations. But interestingly, this figure shows what our outcomes were and by outcomes and readmission rate within 30 days for a respiratory issue versus a non-respiratory issue and ED visits within 48 hours of discharge. And so the three columns that we have here are before we even had an HMV map. This was Sheila Kuhn's study where she had these descriptors and looked at these outcomes prior to any sort of HMV map. Then Jiffy reported on the outcomes after there was the initiation of the six to seven week map. And then once I got involved, my cohort of the NF40 at the time was looking at the outcomes when we had this goal of a, a four-week map. And you can see that there was a significant improvement in terms of readmission rates within 30 days for respiratory causes and non-respiratory causes prior to a map. And then after a map was instituted, there was a significant improvement and then fairly similar outcomes when we compare the six to seven-week map to the four-week map. And then the ED visits, it was hard to compare, but it seems that there was some improvement after we did the four-week map in comparison to the six to seven week map, but I can't say that any of that is statistically significant. These are just me reporting the percentages that I collected. So at least it looks like things weren't getting worse with trying to condense our HMV map. And then, so this data is like brand new, fresh. We've been, uh, Roberta's been wonderfully working with a pre-med student named Sasha, who has been very eager to get involved and they've been working on some data analysis and I've been able to attend some meetings and Sasha just sent out these graphs, I think today or yesterday, and they're very fresh. This is some of the prelim data that we have, but we still have to actually, I think, do some statistical analysis to see what's statistically significant or whatnot. But this shows the demographics by type of diagnosis that they had. So I mentioned that we had a category of weakness as a cost for need for ventilation, respiratory insufficiency as a second category and a central reason for needing a ventilator. And you can see that the majority of our patients do require it for increased respiratory load. And you can see the average age is very significantly between all three categories, really. And then we also looked at a primary language to see the majority of patients still spoke English, but obviously there was significant Spanish-speaking population as well. And we have also collected information on the pressures that were used, so we can compare those to look at as well. And then length of stay and length of stay. But again, stay tuned for more statistical analysis of this to see what our final findings. And then the other way that we tried looking at the data or going to try looking at the data is looking at the demographics by comorbidity. So instead of just weakness and respiratory load or a central cause of hypoventilation, what if we looked at the congenital heart disease population versus BPD and cerebral palsy genetic syndrome, et cetera. So to see if there's any certain population that might have a more, that might be associated with a longer length of stay. And then this is by age group, but in the interest of time, I'm going to 
probably move forward because again, we haven't done the analysis. This is just taking our Excel sheet and presenting it in table and figure form. But interesting, I think that the main thing that we've uncovered so far by looking at the data again, and instead of now looking at it as trying to compare a six to seven week map versus a four week map, we're trying to just see what characteristics are associated with the longer length of stay so that maybe we could counsel those families that even though we have a goal of a four week map, it's not unexpected that your child might be here longer than that based on the population that, you know, that we've seen here at CHLA. And so we do see that there tends to be an association with a longer length of stay, the younger the patient is. So this is by age and it's been broken down into up to a year and then one to two years, two to five years, and then over then six years and over. And you can see that incrementally, the length of stay, average length of stay goes down as the patient gets older. And if we break it down into zero to 36 months versus 36 months and older, there is a, a notable difference in the average length of stay from 41 days to 29 days between these two populations. But again, we do have to look and see what's statistically significant. Longer length of stay so far seems to be associated with younger patients. And again, we have to see what's statistically significant or not, and also explore the length of stay times with various disease types to see if there's an association there. But I when Roberta and Sasha and I were on a meeting, Roberta was looking at some of the, like using some of the statistical analysis software that she has and did find some statistically significant difference. And I think it was up to one year old at the time when we were looking at it with a longer length of stay. So there is some statistically significant findings, but I think that we just have to continue to explore that and finalize our results. And so in terms of the status, we're still actively working on data analysis and creating figures and tables. I have the methods section of a manuscript drafted and the next steps will be to complete data analysis and write a manuscript. I was able to do an oral presentation at a national conference via making lifelong connections. And I did learn a lot through this process. I think it was more challenging than I initially expected to take over a project. Jiffy had started some of the data collection and I had started on with her project. And then I had to find my own way to collect the data that worked for my brain <laughs> and knowing how to move forward, what was organized to me. And then how to do some basic data analysis via Excel and how to adapt when the findings differed from the initial hypothesis as this did and how to do an oral presentation via virtual platform. Love Zoom recordings. These are my citations. It's just the abstract and the oral presentation. And then a big thank you to my mentors on this project as well, Dr. Cotto, who's got me on this in the beginning and helped teach me so much and still is with me on this. And Dr. Liu, I did present to her at the HMV meeting and she had some good feedback in terms of other things to look for. And of course, Jiffy and Sheila, who are instrumental in our HMV population. And then a special shout out to Sasha, who is very eager and just wonderful to work with doing, just really doing an incredible job picking up some of the pieces on this project so we can move forward and is interested in helping write it too, since I'm phasing out. But questions or thoughts on this project? I think uh, there are some similar like this topics, I believe. I can't remember if it's ATS or sleep, but maybe one of the things you might want to look into would be if you focus your presentation on the education of the families or what have they retained or is like the scheduling of the education and tie it to outcomes might be one of the ways to present your data as well. Thank you. Thank you. All right. And then I'll be very brief with this because I know we're running low on, on time, but just briefly for my QI 
project, I did set out to do a respiratory action plan because we get a ton of consults about airway clearance. And we also get a lot of sick calls from families not knowing you know, what the next steps are once their child starts to get sick in terms of airway clearance. So I thought it could be a good idea for each patient to have a personalized respiratory action plan or wrap, both for providers that would admit our patients in the future in terms of gen peds or other providers, and then also for families as well for when their children get sick. So my goal was to ideally create a personalized wrap for any inpatient or outpatient, but obviously that was, and then with the inpatients, I think it would be, the plan was to have the fellow or attending create the wrap and place it in a progress note within 48 hours of discharge. And then once the patient was discharged to have the resident or hospitalist place it in the discharge instructions for families and discharge summaries for future providers. And then from an outpatient standpoint, that would be in our patient instructions for our after visit summary. And I think doing, trying to do both would be too broad to have success. So we focus just on inpatients at the time. And this is just a, an example of a respiratory action plan. So what to do when well, at first sign of illness, and if you're feeling bad despite these treatments. We got to PDSA cycle two to three. I looked at 66 patients. In terms of things I tried to do to make this successful, I tried to have a dot phrase that was public. And I think having the pandemic, it made it difficult because we tried to go a little bit too broadly and include like, instead of just focusing on team three, where I think we could have had success if we worked with them very closely to make this a successful tool versus like also including the hospitalists and all the other teams. I think it just got a little bit too stretched out. It would have been more successful if it had been narrowed in terms of our focus of trying to implement this tool. Tried to do weekly reminders to the teams, but and it was still just a struggle to get people involved to, to place the dot phrase and fill it out. I tried to work with IT to create an ad hoc form to, or pull in orders, other things from like a system standpoint that would have made this more successful, but the hospital committee declined the option for an ad hoc. I also explored different templates. Would it be easier if there was a CF template, a neuromuscular template where you can, it's even more specific and easier to fill out. But ultimately I think it was just difficult to get buy-in for everyone to adhere to implementing this clinical tool. And that's okay. I learned a lot from that process too. And then the other thing that Dr. Boucher had mentioned in my SOC meeting was that I also tried to work with the, the complex care team when they had one at the time, because that was going to be a great population to start using these wraps for, but they, that team dissolved. So that, that didn't go anywhere either, but I learned what QI was, what PDSA cycles were, how to work with the team and try, try all these different things with the hospital and just direct providers to implement a clinical care tool. And I learned a ton about the barriers to implementing a new care tool and how a pandemic can affect your research plans. Thank you to Dr. Cotto for helping and Dr. Vichet. Both of you are really helpful trying to start this and navigate me through it in terms of other options and allowing me to, and then a special shout out to my co-fellows for trying to do this with me and faculty as well for trying to do it and also allowing me to try to present this at faculty meetings as well. And then just other projects I'm currently working on in a very interesting CCHS case report that's focused on three family members that have heterozygous whole gene deletion of FOX2B, which is very minimally described in the literature. And interestingly, these patients lack the defining feature of CCHS, which is hypoventilation, despite having other what you call symptoms of CCHS, like for example, Hirschsprung's or neuroblastoma. So I have this drafted and I'm hoping to submit by next week. And Dr. Prez and Dr. Keynes have been my wonderful mentors on this project. And also I did present a case report on an iatrogenic TEF in an SMA patient with anoxic brain injury with trachement dependence who had presented with abdominal distension, increased excretions, and hypoxemia that I presented at a poster at ATS this past May. And Dr. Bonsall, thank you for getting me involved with the Aero Bronc for that and helping me with my poster as well. 
Okay, that's it. Yeah, really, as a research novice, I had lower expectations, but you all carried me through and just taught me so much. So I can't thank you all enough for your support and mentorship, collaboration and inspiration over the last three years, because, yeah, I just I can't tell you how much I learned. And I'm just very grateful for everyone's help. Hey, congratulations. Congratulations. You've done a tremendous amount. Wow. Thank you. Thank you. Oh, yeah, I, I can hear Therapy. you now. Hurdle in each of them. Oh, baby, can't, if you can hear me, you persevered. You were able to do hard things when things were really tough. And you were always so gracious and calm and you never gave up. So congratulations. Thank you. You guys helped me not give up. <laughs> I think every time I felt like it, you guys were all there to catch me and support me. 